0: So what I'd like to talk about tonight is different aspects of meditation, mindfulness, meditation in daily life. And the, fourth, the first thing is to really, in a way, what are we doing when we meditate? To me it seems to be kind of like a vital question. What is it we're doing? And what is the purpose of doing that? And so I want to kind of look at the basis because of course there are different ways to meditate as we saw in the general discussion in the morning, different way to focus, counting the breath, not counting the breath, being aware of the body. Tomorrow I will introduce being aware of sounds, being aware of the feeling tone. So in a way we can be aware of different things and then There is also practice which doesn't use awareness and then use other focus. And so you could nearly say that you can cultivate mindfulness, awareness, directly or indirectly. Personally, my first 10 years of uh, practicing meditation, I didn't do any awareness practice. I did, not, I did not for one moment be aware of the breath, or the body for that matter. I did something totally different, which I will not have the time to introduce during this uh, time together. And I just sat and asked a question, silently, inwardly, what is this? <coughs> That's all I did. And what was very interesting doing that was that within six months I became aware. I became aware of my thought in a way I had never seen before. And also within six months I became more truly compassionate because up to that moment I thought I was really compassionate but that was only as an idea. But I really became compassionate in that I saw somebody before seeing myself, and seeing that if I acted in this way, then it would be detrimental to them. So real experiential compassion, which would have consequences on my action. And what it showed me, because after that I came back to uh, Europe, I practiced uh, mindfulness meditation, awareness meditation. I thought, oh, that's a good idea, too. (laughs) And so I realized that you can cultivate mindfulness directly, like we're going to do here, but you can also cultivate mindfulness indirectly. The same with compassion. You can cultivate compassion directly, or you can cultivate compassion indirectly. So I think there is this two effect, And I think this is, personally I believe this is due to what we cultivate when we meditate beyond the technique, the tradition we might follow. And so I think what we're doing here, and a lot of what we did today was about anchoring. We cultivate anchoring and experiential inquiry and this we cultivate together. And so with some practice, there is first more emphasis <coughs> on the anchoring, then on experiential inquiry. Some practice you start with experiential inquiry first, with some you do them together. But these two elements are vital to actually this, in a way, making a difference, having a certain effect. So first let's look at anchoring. Often the technical term is translated as concentration. And we don't use the term concentration because as soon as I say to you concentrate, you go like this. Remember when we were children at school, concentrate. And generally you tend so. And also with this concentration, there is this idea we must become a little like, kind of, you know, uh, concentrated tomato paste. You know, suddenly, <laughs> pff, we, I don't know, we become more intense or we become more, I don't know what. When actually, the idea is really to anchor And so the image would be like an anchor of a boat. So you have the anchor with the boat, which means the boat does not get lost, does not hurt, or the boat. But it doesn't mean the boat doesn't move. So the boat moves around, but not too far. And so it's a bit the same we do here. We have an anchor, the breath, the body, Whatever, and it's not that the price is sacred or the body is sacred but that it's a good anchoring point we can come back to and so basically you might say today pff, I had a lot of thought and hopefully you came back many times and actually this is one of the main effects of the meditation. is What do we do when we anchor, basically when we come back to the breath, when we come back to the body? Actually we do four things happen. The first thing is that we don't feed the mental, emotional, or whatever distraction. Generally we spin. And we spin a little here, then we go spinning a little there, but here we go, and we come back. So we go a bit, but then we come back. So that's the first thing, we don't feed the tendency, we don't feed in a way the patterning, for example, of the soul. The second thing is that we don't feed the power of that habit. You might have noticed today that possibly, I mean you had very likely lots of thought, unless you were really sleepy, but very likely you had lots of thought, and did you have a thought you never had before? Possibly not. Possibly you had those thought before. And so what we, it's very important to see that part of the meditation process is actually and Chris will talk about it later on, just becoming more aware of what is it I think. And then you might notice certain tendencies, maybe a little planning, a little daydreaming, a little judging, a little ruminating, etc., etc. And so you can see it's kind of like there is this little mental pattern which we have a tendency to feed to repeat. And so in a way, by returning, we dissolve the power of the habit, but that helps us, third, to come back to the creative functioning. And this is very important to see. Meditation is not about stopping thinking, feeling, sensing, relating. It's actually more about dissolving the habitual nature of this thing and then helping us to bring it back to the creative functioning so that then if we want to plan we do so but not constantly repetitively if we want to imagine we do so but again a little bit and then we can leave it there is no deal I cannot stop myself doing it there is more creativity and more freedom within it. And the fourth thing which happened with the anchor, which is really interesting, is the fact that when you come back to the anchor, that it be the breath, that it be the body, tomorrow the sound, you actually come back to the whole experience. And what you can notice is that when you are somewhere else often you're not here. I mean your body is here, but you're not here. Which means actually what is interesting with sound is that sound will bring you back. And if you come back to the sound, you come back to everything else. And then what happens is that we generally go into a very narrow part of experience often emotional, but a lot of the time mental. So we go in, in a way, especially mental, with abstraction, the past, the future, ideas, and we're not here. And so when we come back to the anchor, we come back to the anchor and everything else around it. So then we are more in the fullness of the experience, we. Be it's multi-perspectival aspect, which then is going to give us much more data if we have to do anything of any nature, instead of being lost <coughs> in a small part of what is going on. <coughs> so, to me, that's what the anchor is about, the anchoring is about, the returning to the anchor is about, these four aspects not continuing, proliferating, diminishing the power of the habituation, back to the creative functioning and coming back to a much wider multi-perspectival experience. And within that, also the anchoring, and that's why we started today very much with the breath and the body. I think in a way part of this practice and the nourishing Chris was talking about is actually being embodied, but not in a negative way. Because, I mean, some of us have a good relationship with our body, but possibly some of us, we become more aware of the body when we are in pain. Outside of that, we want to forget it. Let's get going, you know? If I have some trouble, and then if I'm fine, I don't think about it. But here, with this really kind of this mindfulness of the body, anchoring in the body, it's actually finding some ground within the body, finding actually, you see that the meditation is not just about thinking more clearly or feeling more peaceful. But personally, I think part of the meditation, and that's why there is a sitting, the walking, and trying to bring everything to the working, to the eating, etc., so that you really become embodied. And actually, the body becomes this ground, this place where we can, in a way, take refuge. And I think this is why it can be useful in daily life. I remember one day, I was having one of these uh, meetings, you know, business meeting. Buddhist business meeting. They're not better than <coughs> business meetings. <coughs> and so I was sitting there, we're all, you know, talking about different things, organization, and then suddenly I could feel two people in the group going, ooh, like tension, rising, ooh. And then I could feel here, ooh, and then seeing that actually if I stayed here I would become agitated and kind of you know what can I do, nothing can be done, ooh la la, it's going to be bad but instead I went further down in my belly, in my ground and then there was this kind of larger more spacious experience of being here even if this was a little agitated. And then I could access, what can I do here, which could be creative and help the situation? How can I, in a way, reduce the tension so that they can listen to each other and we can work in a way which is fruitful? And I was able to do that. So we way to see that what we've been doing today was very much about that cultivating that ground, cultivating that, something that we can kind of in a way use as a refuge and also to create a little space. But it doesn't mean that the agitation stops. But we can be with the agitation in a different way. So very much anchoring in a way helping us to be calm, to be grounded, and also bringing a little spaciousness. And then there is another aspect, which is experiential inquiry. You can call it also looking deeply. Technically, the term is vipassana, which means looking deeply. But again, with this term, what is interesting, the same with the anchoring term is you can look at it in terms of cultivation, which is to look deeply, or you can look at it it in terms of effect, and often vipassana can be used to be translated as insight. And so in a way we have to, to, to be careful here, because if you have insight meditation, you might think, oh, I must have insight all the time. That's what the meditation is about. Of course you can have insight, but the meditation is about cultivating, looking deeply, which then of course can give rise to insight. So I think in a way to see a little the difference between the cultivation of something and in a way the effect of something. And so here the idea of this looking deeply experiential inquiry which we already mentioned a little bit, is about change. It's about change, it's about conditionality, it's about how we make things me and mine, but we won't be able maybe to cover everything. So what we look first at is change. And you might say, well, change. I know things change, you know the weather change, the season change, day night. I mean, we generally know things change. But what we, is interesting, we don't often react as if things change. And I think the reason for that is actually evo- evolutionary. I think it's a generalizing principle. We have to make very quick categories. You know, in the old days, in the savannah, lions are dangerous. All lions are dangerous, unless, apart from dead lions, possibly. So, you know, very quickly, lion, dangerous, I run or I protect myself. So we have this very quick categorizing principle. But then if we, it becomes very automatic, then generally, You could nearly say, we generalize too much. And how often will we say, it's always like this. It will never change. And when you say that, you're actually saying, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. And nothing can last like this, nothing. But if we say that, it becomes very difficult for us to creatively engage. Because if it's all the time, what can you do? Nothing. But if it's specific, right now, what's going on? What are the conditions? Then you can creatively engage with it. And so in a way, what we do here during the retreat, because in a way you have more time, you're in the silence, there is more space, then in a way, often what happens is that we are shocked by change. So either happily shocked by change, or unhappily shocked by change. But I think here on a retreat, what we can have is just look more and in a way you could nearly say the minutiae of change. And so just to notice, oh, my sensation, they change. And actually they change in two ways. Either they change because they come and go, or either they change if they continue a bit within themselves. So there is two ways we can look at change the fact things come and go, or that if things continue, generally if you go inside them, generally they change within themselves. And then if we look at it that way, we can in a way address each situation within the condition, instead of having this overarching it's always the same. Where then it's kind of hard to find a way to creatively engage with it. And I would say one of the in you know, we doing this here is so that we kind of aware of it at a more granular level. This is a word I learned when we went to a scientific conference: granularity. And we're like, what that. <laughs> And then I thought, that's a wonderful world for what we're trying to do, to just see the change, kind of at the granular level, what's going on in the sensation, in the sound, in the feeling too, which we'll do also tomorrow. And then, with that, you can turn things a little round and ask yourself, when something happens, when you experience something, a thought, a feeling, a sensation, then you can look and ask yourself, how long is this going to last? So that in a way, instead of jumping, it's going to last forever, and in a way, intensifying it, going to the experience itself, and accompanying it. How long is this going to last? So one ex- experiment once, because uh, that's something I really like to do, to see how long it is going to last. One of the ones I, uh, I did long ago was, I was in town, we were going out with my husband, and we were in the car, there were problems parking, getting out of the parking, and the lights, and things like that. So we get a little, kind of. You know, although we are Buddhist meditation teacher, we get like aggravated. And then my husband says something a little cutting. And of course, I could say something cutting too. But I thought, let's see how long this lasts. <laughs> so instead of kind of saying anything, I don't say anything, and I just go inside the feeling itself. How long does this last, this little unpleasant thing. actually it lasted between two lights two <laughs> red lights and then he was really gone another time I was uh, in a garden shop and it was one of the busy time of the year and sometimes I kind of I don't know I don't have a proper appropriate reaction in France I don't know why and then they look at me like I'm stupid, but really I do stupid things like that. You know? mm-hmm. And I, you know, they speak to me and I'm like, I have no idea what I did or what I have to do. And so that's what happened. And I was not going fast enough or whatever. And so she said something which was a little unpleasant. And then it resolved itself and then I left. And then I was feeling, Brr. and generally you think, I will never go to this garden shop again. <laughs> But I did not do that. I just thought, how long is this going to last? So the thing itself lasted an hour. I went back home. I did different things. And then it went. The hmm went. But then when I thought about the episode, it came back for another hour. (laughs) And then when I brought it up, nothing happened. And that actually can be helpful in terms of gradation. Because often, (coughs) because of that uh, generalizing principle, we think everything is to the same degree. And so generally we don't notice what is life. We notice a little more what is habitual, but what we really notice is intense. But when it's intense, there is not much we can do. We're generally stuck within it. And I think, in a way, what the mindfulness, meditation can help us is to, in a way, see more the gradation. That sometimes, things are light. And if we don't do anything, they just pass. Let them pass. Just observe them. eh? Oh, now they go. And if they go quickly, generally, it's fine. Then you have the habitual. That is interesting. You don't experience them all the time, but time to time, it comes back. And then there is a question. Am I always like this? That's what often people tell me. Oh, it must be underneath, waiting to jump. I don't think so. I don't think it's underneath waiting to jump. Personally, I think it comes because of condition. and I think that's one of the great teachings of the Buddha, conditionality, that things come upon condition, inner condition, outer condition. And then what the mindfulness can be very useful is, one moment I am totally fine, next not. What is different? Of course, we cannot always know condition, but sometimes we can notice, oh yeah, when that person speaks to me that way, or when that person looks at me that way, or when I am tired, I have a tendency to act that way or to say that. And then you can creatively engage with the condition, maybe before they happen or maybe while they happen. So it's kind of like with the mindfulness and that level of patterning, kind of seeing what are the conditions. And often you'll need a trigger, then you will need some what I call some contributing factor and then some uh, basic condition. And what is interesting is that the trigger might not always trigger you. The person says the same thing, <coughs> and it doesn't well trigger you. But if you have not slept well, if you're ill, if you're stressed, that the trigger contributing factor, and then, poof, it happens. So in a way, with the mindfulness, saying, oh, it's life," we can let it pass. It's habitual, how can I creatively engage with this? How can I notice the different conditions, trigger, contributing factor? And then there is an intense level. And the intense level, generally people say, but you know, I want to let it go. I feel intensely and it should just disappear. But if it's intense, it's not going to disappear. Very unlikely. Because we have to see that when it's intense, it's a shock to the whole system, body and mind. And so in a way, it has to go through the system. And then the question here is more, how can I not make it continue longer than it would? This is a question with intensity. How am I making it worse? amplifying it and how am I just being with it, helping with a little calm a little anchoring, coming back to it back to the anchor, so that slowly over time it will dissipate, but over time and so what we can do here is not stop it because we are human and things happen to us But we can try, with the mindfulness, not to amplify it. So in a way, through this experiential inquiry, through this, in a way, looking at change, we're kind of, again, trying to see more gradation and see that actually there are different, I would say, creative engagement with the light, with the habitual, with the intent. So that's why the idea about change is not because we have to be careful. It doesn't mean change, it doesn't mean things change all the time. Sometimes they change slowly, sometimes they change fast, but there is also a continuity within it. That I think is very important. We're not saying everything changed to the same degree all the time. And also we must be careful a lot of the time there is no magical change. Like tomorrow, I doubt that I will become a pink rabbit. This I think is unlikely. I mean, I could get bronchitis in the night or things of that nature, but pink rabbit, I doubt it. At least something happens definitely to the universe. So we have to be careful with change. It doesn't mean there is no continuity. Of course, there is continuity, but within the continuity, there is change. So in a way, it's kind of a kind of what is it that is relatively continuous but could change a little bit within it, and what is it that comes and goes. So that's what we try to do when we uh, cultivate the meditation, also that looking deeply. And this actually is not complicated. It's not scientific or psychological, is just being aware of change in the experience, hmm? it's gone. Or if you have something which is a sensation, to notice, to go inside it, hmm. it's not, generally it's not solid and fixed, generally there is some slight shifting, changing in the experience. So exploring this for ourselves. And I feel that helps us to develop openness and clarity. So in a way when we practice meditation (coughs) with the anchoring and the looking deeply, we're combining in a way calmness and clarity, stability and openness. And that in a way helps us to develop to cultivate mindfulness. And then the thing with mindfulness, this is a little tricky to use this term mindfulness because, in a way, it's what we cultivate, it's the effect of that cultivation, and it's also what we're going to apply. So actually mindfulness can describe different things. Mindfulness can describe the fact that we try to be aware in a certain way, but in order to do that we use mindfulness and then we apply ourselves in a mindful way. So mindfulness has many different contexts. And as I pointed out, and Chris also, that attention, just to see that attention when we pay attention, as in anchoring, that will often, unless you have a very open, spacious anchor, that will have an intensifying effect. And that's why we talk about friendlessness, or what we can talk about caring and careful mindfulness, so that there is a little balancing of that intensifying effect when we anchor and pay attention to something, as we mentioned with the breath. Another thing we have to be careful with, mindfulness, is that it's not about becoming more self-conscious than we are. We can be fairly self-conscious. And to me, one of the great beauty of the meditation is over time to dissolve a certain aspect of our, I would say, running commentary thought. I feel there is two levels of thought without making it uh, too simplistic. One is what I would call the creative functioning, planning, calculating, reflecting, etc. Just the ability the brain has (coughs) to do different operations, in a way. And then on top of that, you have generally often a selfing, running commentary. This is what I saw the first time I became aware in Korea when I was practicing. Suddenly, I saw my thought, and my thought, they were about me, look at me, I am here, I am achieving this, what about me, Lee? And I thought, oh, that's where the problem is. <laughs> You know I'm thinking about myself 95 percent of the time. So maybe I need to kind of you know reduce not zero percent, but at least bring it down to 50 percent, so then you have space for others. But the other thing about that is that, in a way, we think that if we think about ourselves, it has kind of some magical operation. But actually, it's using a lot of electricity and chemical in the brain, which we could use for something else. I mean, I am me. I don't have to think about me, you know? I can experience myself, then I can, you know, act and do different things according to values and things. But do I have to think about myself? And on top of it, do I have to think about what other people think about me or what I should think what they think about me? When <laughs> not really, do we? So this is, I think, an interesting thing, which is part of the practice. Is not saying, I must not think about me, because then you think about yourself even more. But it's just, I think, in the anchoring just in the anchoring, you come back, you come back, just in the being aware of the change, then actually those actually go by itself over time. I think that's one of the gifts of the meditation. And then it's easier to become more creative. Then to finish, I'd like to just mention um, a little bit to prepare us for tomorrow. So tomorrow we're going to use as an anchor, listening, and I'll talk more about how to do that tomorrow. But why I think this anchor is really important, the listening meditation, is in terms of daily life. I think that if tomorrow we'll do this listening meditation, and I think it's vital in terms of how do we listen? This is really important. One of, in Korea actually, where I trained first, uh, at that time the retreats were not in silence. But I wanted to be better than everybody else. And also I wanted to see what it would be like. So for a month I was total silence. So, so I was very good. And then at the end of the month, what I learned from it, is actually, it was really helpful in terms of listening and in terms of speaking. Because I saw myself asking myself, do I really need to say this now? How is it important to say that? It can wait, it's not necessary. Because what is interesting with speech is that often we have the feeling We have to say it, even if it's not appropriate, even if there is no time or thing of that nature. And in a way, the silence helps us to see. yeah, I could say it or not. I could say it in a different way at another time, when appropriate. So in a way, giving us more space in terms of the speech. But also, I think the listening meditation is really looking, how do we listen? And often, I would say we listen in three ways. One, we wait for the person to stop so we can say something so much more interesting. (laughs) Which then we're actually doing three things, waiting for the person to stop, hearing what they say, and remembering what we are going to say which is so much more interesting because we don't want to forget it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second way, we look in the right direction but we think about the shopping list, the holidays <laughs> and then the person says when they stop, what do you think? And we have no idea what they say. I mean your here hopefully works, the sound you did not hear it because you were not there, you can really see mindfulness. There was no attention, no mindfulness, and actually you did not hear it. That's interesting. And then the third way is that the person speaks and you grasp by what they say and then you amplify, which generally doesn't help the situation. And so tomorrow, to me, part of the listening practice is to just listen. Just listen, don't prepare, just listen. Just let the sound come to you. And to me this is so beautiful to do that because you really listen to the person, but also by really totally listening to the person, actually your creativity gets totally engaged in that moment. And often you surprise yourself by how appropriate And often you say things you had never thought before. And so that's one of of the beauty of uh, meditative listening. And I think this is something we can really cultivate in daily life, in many different ways. And then also tomorrow will be a bit few different things, but we don't have so much time, and I think it's really important for (coughs) daily life. And we look, At this term, which I think combines well with the listening, is what we could call feeling tone. So he's really looking at the tonality of experience upon contact. So today Chris talked quite a lot about contact, generally contact through the senses. We hear, we smell, we taste, we see, we sense in the body, we have thought in the mind. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment to say there are many more senses than that, but we'll just keep with the six basic senses for now. And so, through all of these six sense doors, we're in contact. We see something, we hear something, we taste something. And immediately, there is like a kind of a tonality. So it's really talking about basic tonality. It's not talking about full-blown complex emotion like anger or sadness or happiness. It's also not so much talking about like a feeling sensation where you kind of start to feel something a little specific, definite in the body, like a little maybe around the heart, around the neck, around the belly, a little agitation, heaviness, lightness. But it's just upon the contact. You have a little tonality and generally it's pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We'll call it neutral for sure. And that is a very important mindfulness. It's a a second one. The first one is mindfulness of the breath, the body, and the second one is actually mindfulness of the feeling tone. And this is really important to be mindful of because this really influences how we speak, how we act, how we behave. But because it's relatively subtle a lot of the time, It takes, it makes it, has an impact on our behavior, but we don't notice it's from that. And we think it's because of something else, often. Let me give you an example. Let's say that's what happened to me once. Uh, I had a really good time, and then I misunderstood something, and then suddenly the thing shifted, and then, it was not as pleasant anymore. So I went from very pleasant to a bit unpleasant. And then I left it, went to do whatever I had to do. And then two hours later, I was speaking to my husband in an unpleasant way. And he had not done anything. And I thought, oh, why am I doing this? So then I traced back. And it was, as I went upstairs, the feeling from pleasant changed to unpleasant. And then the problem with unpleasant is that it kind of seems to stick, or we stick to it, and then we spread it. So we might have a problem here, and then we spread it over there, which has nothing to do with it. So that's one of the reasons it's relatively important to be aware of the feeling tone. Another thing, and I'll talk a little more about it tomorrow in the instruction, is the fact that you have a whole range of tonality, you could say. So pleasant, you have from 1 to 10. Then you have neutral, that's another story. And then you have unpleasant, minus 1 to minus 10, let's say. But what is interesting is that there is an imbalance. We need to be pleasant number five to think, wow, that's great. So generally there is a whole range, one to five, we generally think this is normal. But anything that's unpleasant, minus one, no way. So of course for evolution purpose we have much faster reaction to unpleasant. Of course we have to. But that creates an imbalance because of that. We have very little, in a way, how can we creatively engage with unpleasantness in different gradation. And also because it gives us kind of not much in terms of the pleasant. And so in a way, with the mindfulness of the feeling tone, then we have a bigger range in terms of the pleasant. And then the idea is, how can I creatively engage with the different range of what is unpleasant and not, in a way, immediately amplify it? And then you have my favorite, Not because it's the best, but because I think it's interesting. You have a neutral feeling too. And people, and this is like not... um, In Buddhist circle, people don't agree on that one. Some people think it doesn't exist. Some people think it's indeterminate. Some people think it's indifference. And some people think it's a beginning of equanimity. So a really wide range of understanding of that. It is true that nowadays, in modern life, neutrality generally doesn't have a good press. Doesn't have kind of you feel neutral. Oh, this is boring. I am boring, my life is boring. So it can quickly become unpleasant. But personally, I feel uh, neutral feeling tone could actually be the baseline. So in a way, this is a baseline, this is a balance. So it doesn't mean that meditation is about being neutral all the time, not at all but that we go up, we go down, but we come back to neutral because in a way you could say it's restful. It's a resting place for the organism. We cannot always be down, we cannot always be up, but then the neutral is kind of restful. So that in a way, also through the mindfulness, we extend the range of neutral. And so, when nothing happens, I mean, you could say first, nothing bad is happening. That's already one thing. But also, it's restful. It's peaceful. And so we could be with the feeling tone of neutral in a different way. And then finally, I wanted to um, about One more thing in terms of the feeling tone, that you also have the feeling tone of mindfulness itself. That's interesting. So let's make an um, first little experiment in terms of what I mean by feeling tone. Look at the curtains. They're kind of reddish brownish. Then look at the just the wall, well plain, and notice looking at the color of the curtain, which is a little more intense, to looking at the plain color of the wall. The actually the feeling tone is a little different, just a little bit. And this is just a color, no? You see somebody wearing yellow. If you think, oh Oh, green, hmm. The other day my sister said to me, I love green. I thought, she loves green? <laughs> I mean, I like green in the grass. I think it's a great color, but whenever I put it on me, I think, mm. So it's interesting. I like the color, but on me, unpleasant feeling too. So what is interesting with color is that, I mean, color have not done anything to us. But you see a colour and immediately you generally have a little bit of a feeling tone. If it's more intense, more pronounced, if it's more vague, a little less pronounced. Then you might have a tendency to think that feeling tone is in the object. That's also one thing we think a lot of the time. So you might decide certain things are good in themselves, especially food. You think food, yeah, you know, I love mango, or I love cherry. And of course, everybody should love mango and cherry because they're good.
1: The feeling tone is
0: in it. But then you encounter somebody who hates mango, and you're like, wait a minute, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Try this one; it's a good one. They said, "Oh, that's interesting." So we have to see that the feeling tone is constructed, constructed in terms of, I mean, what we decide to like. You know, I lived in Korea for ten years, and the cake they liked is very different. If you, I gave you a rice cake that they like, you would say, "Hmm." this is a dessert and I I like it I learned to like it that's what is interesting you can also change the feeling tonic connection to things so you have you know society culture you have what happened to you very likely your physiology also dependent on the weather I mean I love ice cream in the summer I would never eat ice cream in the winter so it's the same thing gives me a different feeling tone according to the weather. So it's just to see that's what is also interesting with feeling tone to see, oh, it's constructive. So then you have a whole thing around conditionality there. But let me come back briefly to one thing we can, during the retreat, notice between just contact. I see something and the contact and the feeling tone of that. And then, when we are aware in, as Chris said, in a friendly, caring, careful, open manner. And how to be aware in that way actually also bring a feeling tone to the experience. But we can talk more about this tomorrow. My time is up. So we just have a little time if you have some <coughs> comments or some questions yes uh, you talked about using experiential inquiry to uh, understand and structurally manage change or different types of feeling can, can you expand a bit on the scope of experiential inquiry, what's different areas you can apply it to and also how to avoid it turning to the if you were focusing on one particular... This is, what, this is why I use the term experiential inquiry. So I mean, again, of course, within the Buddhist tradition, this is done in many different ways. It's very interesting. Anchoring is often done very similarly in terms of coming back. But inquiry, experiential inquiry can be done in a more uh, kind of philosophical way, or it can be done in a more reflective way, as in Lamrim in the Tibetan tradition. It can also be done like where I learned it in a more kind of questioning way, very different uh, way to do it. And it can be done in this more vipassana way which is then is to go inside the experience. So in terms of the practice, I'll talk more about it tomorrow, but there, I think it's more in terms of the practice, in terms of the vipassana, is having that movement of either, instead of going into the generalization and commenting, it's going into the experience itself. Let me give you an example, for example. So many years ago, suddenly, I had an attack of pain. I had pain everywhere, and at such pain, I thought the pain was outside of myself, like around here was painful too, and I was at death door. And then I thought, wait a minute, where is the pain exactly? And then I did a body scanning. Head, no pain. Neck, no pain. So slowly, I kind of circumscribed it to just having pain in my hips. And then it becomes manageable. I could do exercise or take a painkiller. So in a way, I see part of the experiential inquiry as kind of looking what's going on in the body, for example, or in the feeling sensation. So not the feeling tone, we'll do that tomorrow, <coughs> but sometimes you start to feel something. Hmm? And generally we go into meaning-making. Oh, this is that, because of that, etc. I mean, if it's intense, it's obvious. But sometimes it's just amorphous. But we can make it into something very fast. And then with the experiential inquiry, we could just, how is it? Before I name it, what is experience itself? Little amorphous, possibly a little agitated, a little awkward. So then you are more with the experience than in a way the describing, naming, extrapolating. Or in another way, I mean, for me, what really was revealing is, when we experience something, if it's up to a certain intensity, immediately because of the intensity, we think it's going to last. And so one way to look at this is when you're sitting, for example, in meditation, and you have a little kind of like here, it itches. So generally you would scratch, then you would scratch more, but like you sit here, and you go inside the itch. And when you're inside it, you have this impression, it's so there, is going to last forever. Then he goes. And it's so not there. And to have that experience of having that impression it's going to be there forever and two seconds later, totally gone. That, I think, is important to realize, oh yeah, things change. And in terms of practicality in daily life, I mean, I have a friend who can have very intense state and doing the meditation and doing this really helped her in terms of like when she's in the intense state now she knows at some point it will stop, which makes a difference to thinking it will last forever. And so this makes actually in terms of the experience a big difference if you go into the totalizing, or if you're aware, yes, it's tough right now, but at some point, as in the past, because she has that experience that, yes, it's very intense, but it stopped at some point. She has had many experiences of that, but now she can, in a way, really know it, sense it for herself. And it makes a big difference to how she is with those days. So think of that nature.